Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Broadcasting today from Triple R World HQ, which is on the end of the 96 line, which of course is on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past and present and I remind everyone that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now on Sunday I was uh, bored as I often am. Uh, it was a beautiful day so I hopped on my Vesper and headed down to Acme actually to catch the last day of the How I, I See It exhibition. It was fab, you can't go and see it now so I might, might as well not spruik it too much. Um, it was a great thing about uh you know that so many aboriginal artists who are talented and their ruminations on language identity and the history of this country and it was the latter part of that that sort of got me thinking a little bit i was in the area so i thought i would uh go down to a place that's not too far away from acme um to a place called uh speaker's corner which is still there and it was a place that between 1890 and the 1960s Orators would gather to articulate their views on local and international issues. It was originally a one-hectare site, heavily treed area under the western part of what was uh, Flinders Park, but it's still there. There's still a significant slab of it there, and it is still a beautiful, heavily treed spot. And it was a place where people would go on uh, these bluestone mounds, which many are still there as well. Um, So it was an actual part of our history that we can actually go and tangibly be in the presence of. Now, among the people that would go down there, from about the 1930s onwards, were members of the Australian Aborigine League, which of course was headed up by Yorta Yorta Man, Uncle William Cooper, and other notorieties uh, and uh, amazing people like uh, Aunty Margaret Tucker, Shadrach James, very good-looking man, um, Doug, Uncle Doug Nichols, to name just a few. And there would be other various groups there, particularly after the First World War, where there was so much happening in, politically in this country. There was the huge disruption of the war itself, and ideologies like communism and uh, nationalism were floating about the place. And so it was a very vibrant, but very also very heavy political time, during that period. So you'd have communists, Christians, Republicans, monarchists, unionists, unionists, and a mob calling um, themselves Native Australians, which were basically white uh, people that were born in Australia and they were trying to assert their rights too. But amongst that all was the Australian Aborigines League. And they were calling for Aboriginal representation in the Australian Parliament as early as 1938 here in Victoria. Now, does that sound familiar? The reason I point it out is because what is going on now at The Voice is not anything particularly new, but most people wouldn't know the history of the continuum on which we were all riding in terms of trying to get representation. Now, I know that there is debate and conjecture about the sequencing, whether it should be voice, truth and treaty, or should be treaty first and voice and representation after that in the parliament. But despite that, 
there has been calls for Aboriginal people to be included in the Parliament of Australia as early as 1924. And we'll be our second guest tonight, uh, Professor John Maynard, we'll be talking to him about uh, that movement, which actually got up and started happening in Sydney even before the Australian Aborigines League in the 1930s. So um, I just wanted to do that just to remind us that here in 2023, we talk about voice, truth and treaty, but it's important to know whose continuum we ride on. And as far as I'm concerned, this part of Australian history, a little-known part, is every bit as important as knowing whose land we're standing on at any given time. Because the social justice movement was born out of these leaders and out of these brave, some would say warriors, who were pushing the case for truth and justice and treaty and representation at a time where... well. Do I have to point out what 1930s Australia would have been like and the way that uh, Aboriginal people would have been treated back then? So that was a great day. I urge you to go down and um, have a look at yourself, try and fill the, fill the place. It's uh, just on the banks of the area near the tennis centre. And, um, you know, get in touch with a bit of history yourself. Uh, but in a moment, we'll be speaking with uh, Muriel, Muriel Bamblett who, of course, is no stranger to the RRR airwaves. Lots to talk to her about. Uh, closing the Gap, the Coalition of the Peaks uh, Joint Council and the implementation they have for Closing the Gap. But there's also been a bit of policy that's been announced today that's been introduced into the Victorian Parliament that I will uh, speak to uh, Muriel about. You're listening to the mission on uh, 102.73 RRR FM and to tonight's first guest... Um, of course, our first guest this evening, like I said at the top of the show, is no stranger to Triple R, but it is her first appearance on this little program. Annie Muriel Bamblett is a Yorta Yorta Jajawang woman and the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. She's also the chairperson of SNAKE, the peak body representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander family services nationally. Uh, she is on literally dozens of advisory bodies and is also a member of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. We asked um, Annie Muriel on, for her, on in her capacity as the Coalition of Peaks Joint Council on the Closing the Gap representative for education and families to talk about the government's second Closing the Gap implementation plan alongside the Coalition of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Peak Organisations annual implementation plan. But there has also been an announcement made today regarding a state reform that would see Victorian judges and child protection workers having to consider the past mistreatment of Aboriginal families when dealing with cases involving Indigenous children. So, uh, in Annie Muriel's capacity as Chairperson of Snake and the CEO of VACA, I thought we would start there. Uh, Annie Muriel Babel AO, welcome to the mission. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure. Now, if we just start with that um, state reform that was announced basically today, um, yep. what would this reform, if it were to pass through Parliament, mean for Aboriginal children and their families? I think we've already had legislation that um, transfers authority for um, decision-making to a CEO of an Aboriginal organisation. And so that legislation um, was put in place in 2005, but we didn't actually start to really enact it until about 2017. 
And now this new legislation really is a statement of intent. It recognises self-determination. It actually has stronger commitment to all elements of the Aboriginal Child Placement Principle. But it also extends the powers so that we actually have the capacity to, to undertake investigations um, mm -hmm. for families. And, and I don't see that as a punitive response. What we want to do is have our families to be able to to be able to go in and help families much earlier to put things in place. Um, many of our families, if you look at the child protection data, it says that families can wake up to nine months before they actually um, get the, to go through the process of an investigation and and get a response. And so we want to be able to get in much earlier. Um, we want to work with families to, I guess, address the over-representation and I think, you know, it is very much um, an issue across the whole, um, you know, all, all overseas and in, you know, particularly in Indigenous community, children of colour are overrepresented in child protection and the further into the system, the further the over-representation. So there are clearly issues of institutional abuse, of, you know, um, racism, of bias and so I, I think for us to be able to take this on um, will be the first time in Australia that this role has been transferred to Aboriginal people. It's something that um, we can say that if things like this start to be implemented in partnership with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal people, then I think the Crown, as the most progressive state in Victoria, can actually start to be fairly applied to the state because this is, as you just mentioned, groundbreaking stuff and the first for any state or territory in Australia. Yeah, look, I mean, Canada and other countries are well ahead, but, but you know, a lot of this is based around their treaty rights and, so, yeah. you know, and charters that they have. Um, in, a, in, in Victoria, um, clearly we've begun the journey around treaty, but um, I think what um, us being able to... And, and early evidence suggests that we have much higher rates of um, reunification. So many of our children that have been on long-term orders for over two years, our reunification rate is 23%. The department is 12%. So it, what it's based the data saying is our children are more likely to go home because we're doing the work. We're doing the work around getting families, you know, treatment and responses for family violence, for drug and alcohol, for, for mental health, for homelessness. And many of these issues, um, you know, a lot of mainstream find it too complex and they're put in the too hard basket. And, and we've got to stop that. Our people can't be, you know, overrepresented in disadvantage and not have a system that responds. I guess it begs the question straight up, um, Aunt, that has the government mentioned any sort of uh, funding reform to make sure that Aboriginal organisations across the state, and in particular VACA, uh, are resourced appropriately to take on what is a very arduous job? Um, you know, in interestingly, the Premier... Um, after he got election, elected, he said he did want to reform um, the child protection system. He did want to do, um, you know, address the um, Aboriginal overrepresentation. He's already had a meeting with us um, in January of this year where he's signalled that he's prepared to really sort of take this on. 
I guess, and he wants to have a workshop with the Aboriginal Community Controlled Organisations. So back is one, but there are 16 ACOs across the state that are delivering child and family welfare. So it is about how do we do that. We're already seeing, we've been running some um, pilot programs around, um, you know, investigations and diversion, and, and what we're finding is a 78% um you know, reunification rates. So we're already seeing evidence. And so we're starting to build an Aboriginal evidence base about what's working and what we're doing. And I think we're starting to showcase. And I think it shows fundamental flaws in the current child protection system. And I think um, many of the community sector organisations are basically saying, should, you know, should there be the current system of child protection and should we change the whole nature of how we do child protection? But, yes, I mean, it does refunding. A lot of our funding at the moment is subject to budget bids, mm -hmm. and so that means that... I, at the moment, I have 800 children that I care for, but only 200 are under guardianship. Oh, um, wow. If we extend them, yeah, and if we extend the legislation um, to include investigations, at the, mon at the moment, the funding's only for 95 children, and yet there are hundreds and, and hundreds of notifications, and so being able to respond. And so the Premier heard it, and he has said, I want to come back. And I want to meet with the community. I want the department to do some work to look at the modelling and, and to look at what will it require. So there's quite a bit now for, you know, it's, it's unfortunate you have to meet with the Premier to get this level of action. Mm. But it demonstrates that when you've got a serious commitment to wanting to do something, that you can move, you can move and we can move on things that are important to Aboriginal people. I mean, I think to give people at home a, a, an idea of the scale of the, the issue that needs to be addressed here, there was an audit, Auditor-General's report uh, last year tabled and it found that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were 20 times more likely to be in kinship care than non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And the numbers around uh, the child protection system more broadly is that one in nine Aboriginal babies um, are taken from their parents by the state of Victoria, which is more than double the national average. So it is something that is long overdue, long overdue in terms of the need for it to, to be addressed. And I think one of the um, pleasing things to see about this, Aunt, is that there is bipartisan support for the yeah. bill. Both the Greens and the Liberal Party are prepared to support the bill with, I'm, I'm guessing, probably some minor amendments along the way. But that must be very gratifying to see as well. I think um, we've worked really hard with all levels of government because we know that... Um, and we really sort of to address any concerns or reservations that they have. And, you know, I think everybody knows that this is something that needs to be addressed. I think that they know that um, the historical... I mean, there's no secret to the fact that many of the children that we... that I see, I see their cultural support plans, and these are children that are third, fourth, fifth generation of Aboriginal children that have been removed, uh, many from Tasmania, many from remote parts of Australia and brought to Victoria on the premise of giving them a better life or yeah. even some were just bought here for a holiday. And so, you know, we've got um, sealed adoption records where children can't find their Aboriginal family because their records have been sealed. 
um, th- these are the realities of the work that we're dealing with. We've got children that have, you know, are clinging to us as a mechanism to be able to connect back to family, to know who they are, to be able to, be, you know, be able to identify safely and strongly. And so we do a lot of work around return to country, around genealogies, confirmation of Aboriginality. Um, you have no idea what it's like for children to be involved in, you know, um, camps and, and to be, you know, um, be involved in yarning circles with uncles and aunties and to, you know, just that they proudly wear the Aboriginal flag. And so it is, well, you know, it, it's just really pleasing for us to be able to bring, you know, our kids that are in care. But these our kids in care mix with a broader community, all of our staff, our children. We all, you know, it becomes, they become our kids and they're more than just kids and a number. Well, that's what we mean when we say you know, we're able to provide that cultural wraparound care that they're Mm -hmm. not able to get elsewhere. And it makes the places, the places, the child at the centre, of course, but it also also creates a space where that is basically the safest place for that child to be. And and hopefully that makes the, 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 the kid feel nurtured and loved and in touch with their culture. And that's what Aboriginal community organisations can do that, um, frankly, mainstream organisations just can't uh, at the moment and probably not in the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think the, um, the good part is that, you know, like we have now um, really strong partnerships with mainstream organisations that are really supportive and on board. Right. Um, but too many of our children, the biggest percentage of Aboriginal children um, are in the care of mainstream organisations. So the Premier is also committed to look at transferring all uh, you know, 100% of Aboriginal children to Aboriginal community control. And so th- those are really big commitments to have Aboriginal people take on investigations, to Aboriginal people take on guardianship and, and for Aboriginal children to be in the care of a- an Aboriginal organisation. So I think these are strong commitments, but they're built on, um, you know, the fact that Aboriginal people, we're stepping up to the mark. I think in the past we've let everybody do for us and I think now we're starting to do for ourselves and and that to me is what self-determination is really all about, is us using our self-determination muscles and flexing our, you know, ability to be able to deliver on better outcomes And, and I think that's what we need to do. But, you know, and we'll make mistakes, there's no doubt about that and we won't be perfect. But it's just that um, our kids rely on us, our families. Um, we, we, are, we are seeing through our services 6,000 people a year coming to us for help, with, you know, whether it's food, whether it's education support, whether it's just because they've um, you know, got family violence, they're homeless. We see thousands of people a year and um, we, we fly under the radar a bit but um, our footprint is very strong and I think what we want to be acknowledged is just that, you know, our role is to really strengthen families and keep families together. Well, it's a very, very important area of reform and it's exciting to see that something has yeah. been done about it. But it's also being done on the basis of years and years of advocacy from people like yourself that have got us to this point. So it's very much a, a watch this space and we'll keep in touch on that. Well, I've got you on the line. Uh, we might as well talk about something that probably gets 
Well, it doesn't fall through the cracks, but there is just so much um, conversation and national dialogue around the voice at the moment that the yeah. closing the gap agenda sort of, is sort of taking a back seat for the, for the time being in, in terms of national consciousness. But the Coalition of the Peaks, which uh, you are a um, part of, has released an implementation plan to go forward with the, um, I guess, the, the action that the government's taking. And this year, you've decided as a coalition that you'll be focusing on partnership and capacity building, um, building understanding and ownership and engagement, monitoring and influencing uh, progress and communication and public accountability against all the actions that are set out under the COAG reform and the national partnership that follows that. Um, how are you feeling about that whole huge agenda at the moment? Look, I've I'm, I'm obviously been involved since the start. And, and when we started this conversation, the government really only wanted to focus on prosperity targets. And I think they're critical. But um, given the Commonwealth's role in the states and territories and their performance across you know, um, many areas, we, we really did fight to address particularly justice issues, family violence, education outcomes, child protection, and, and get greater... Um, because this is a coalition... This was, um, at the time, COAG, so the Commonwealth, all of the heads of government of states and territories and, and the Prime Minister meeting to talk about how they actually closed the gap. And so... We figured that, yes, it was good to have prosperity targets, but the most important thing was to look at um, what are the priority areas. And so we came up with 16 targets, 17 targets, sorry, and four reform priorities. Now, the national agreement to me, I, I, I'm such a big supporter of because I've seen the, the difference in the way Commonwealth states and territories now are working with us to see First Ministers actually, you know, up committing. Like last week, Pat Turner was able to sit with at, at the table with um, all the Commonwealth and all the heads of government and talk to uh, the fact that she that closed the gap and where they were at. And she actually implored them to come and meet with their individual cabinets with um, so that she could talk about their progress and, and their implementation plans and, and how they were working with the Aboriginal communities and states and territories. Now, that may not mean much to, you know, people that, are, you know, get service system. But what we're seeing is results as far as engagement. Like, if I use child welfare, we're sitting now as, you know, Snape, the national voice, we're sitting in the room with all of the ministers for um, child and family welfare and the Commonwealth Minister, and we've actually come up with a plan as to what we're going to do about the over-representation of children. Now, um, that may not mean a lot to a lot of people outside, but this means that there'll be dedicated plans, serious high-level agreements have been already signed off and action plans for each state and territory. And so you can see that the traction and the, the what's in the national agreement is binding of states and territories. And I think if you look at the reform priorities, mm -hmm. um, the first one is shared decision-making. Yep. And so what does that look like? And so the second one is investment in Aboriginal um, community control Control. And so, you know, looking at how do we actually um, get greater um, participation and engagement of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations across all of those 17 targets. 
Then we've got mainstream accountability and so also about cultural safety and mainstream organisations, but also their willingness to give up some of their power and resources back to Aboriginal community control. And the last reform priority is data. And so we really put for really good data to be understand, understand data. And so there's a lot of conversations about data sovereignty, intellectual property rights, all those sorts of things are coming into these conversations. But some of some of the big, you know, things within the national agreement, um, Clause 55, it's around commissioning. How do the states and how does the Commonwealth actually um, give out funding? And most of the funding goes to mainstream. And yeah. so, how, you know, how do we change the commissioning and the contracting? And so how does the Commonwealth do that? And so we're also looking now across at states and territories. Um, we've done a piece of work around looking at the expenditure that um, government spend on Aboriginal within each state and territory and there's a glaring gap. Um, people think that Aboriginal people get all this money but very little of the state and territory money and Commonwealth money actually goes to Aboriginal community control. It goes to mainstream services. So having a look at that and having a look at the data, um, some of the critical elements are around workforce. We're looking at a workforce strategy. We're looking at sector development. Um, we're looking at place-based reform, um, we're looking at different sites to roll out data and look at what are the data needs in particular areas and particular parts. We are trying to focus as well on some of the remote areas. Obviously, the Northern Territory is taking a lot of our, um, obviously, work efforts, and it should. There's certainly a significant need to invest, but there's also the work that we're doing on the National um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, DV Family Violence and um, Sexual Abuse Strategy, a dedicated plan for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Now, these things don't have, don't just come. No. They come with strong advocacy and they do come with voice. And I'm not saying that, you know, this, the, the close the gap are the voice, but we're often the voice of the voiceless. So people that use our systems, people that want a better service, people whose rights are violated before systems, um, I believe that they need a voice as well. Um, I'm obviously totally in support of the voice because I just think um, it's a no-brainer. If, if anyone was to vote tomorrow, would they vote against a yes vote? Um, I would say, you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer for me. Why, why not? I mean, yeah. I was really disappointed today to hear that two of my staff went to um, Red Rooster and had their treaty shirts on and a guy started attacking them about his opinion about the voice and so I think um, things are getting quite tight and it's, it's quite uncomfortable for Aboriginal people um, yeah. right now. That's, that's think, something that I want to sort of, you know, through the use of this program is to remind yeah. people that um, 2023 for, uh, for Aboriginal people is going to be a very tough year f just on the yeah. voice front alone. There's a lot of noise and uh, uh, violence that comes from outside and there's a degree of lateral violence that is also occurring yeah. at the moment. And my plea to everyone, particularly within our own community, is to look after each other and understand that we do yeah. have different opinions, but we can still respect each other. 
uh, at the same time. And I think what you've just highlighted through our interview um, tonight, Art, is the amount of work that is going on across the place, across the country, and it's built on years and years of advocacy. It is driven by Aboriginal people, and we're getting to a point now where, in a policy development sense, we're coming to a point where, well, you can actually start calling this self-determination, and it's because of people like you and uh, a whole bunch of people throughout the generations and organisations that were at this point. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's a bit... It's, I, I really don't understand it because we already have, like, people like Linda Burney, Patrick Dodson, Melanie McCarthy. We've got our own Jana Stewart, you know. Um, we've got, you know, whether you like or not, Lydia Thorpe and all, you know, um, Jacinta Price, they've all got a voice in Parliament, but they're not a voice selected by Aboriginal people to be the voice, but you know that they put voice in the room. They put Aboriginal voice and they raise those issues. And, and, and that's what government listens to. Um, the, Premier, the Prime Minister listened to learn Linda Burney. Um, he's now listening to Aboriginal people. I, I think it's important to be able to have Aboriginal people. I respect so much all of those people in leadership. They are putting their necks on the line. They are getting they're getting roasted by the media day every in, day. day. Yep, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, it's a to me it's a form of bullying. It's lateral violence. I think it's you know it's just horrible to have to you know um, and not to be able to defend them because if you put it up you you know it becomes a turkey shoot for yourself. You start to That's get right. shot down by everybody. So. It's it's really sad that, you know, we can't support elite activism, we can't support those that want to do the right thing in our country. I just know that through my own personal experience, whenever I've been um, added or mentioned or replied to by someone like Linda or Dorinda, I um, haven't had the pleasure mm-hmm. of Jacinta yet, just the amount of violence that they receive... Um, on a daily basis to anything they tweet, anything they post on social media. The, the amount of bigotry, racism, sexism that comes aimed yeah. at them is disgusting and it's something that we need to, to move beyond. And so, you know, I personally thank them for you know, having the courage to stand up and put themselves in those leadership oh, positions yeah, yeah. because sometimes you feel absolutely helpless when there's a massive pile on, on those. But um, I've got to let you go. Um, thank you yeah. so much well, for I mean, your time. Yeah, look, but remember that Linda Burney came from us. She was very much a community person. She worked in education, yep. frontline, LACG. So these people are real community people. Look at Pat Dodson. Look at Mel- Melanderry. Look at Jana. So, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Sorry I spoke over. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> Have a good night. You too. Take care. Uh, now, on to tonight's second guest. Now, you may have heard a bit of uh, noise and a bit of uh, national conversation taking place around a thing called the voice to parliament at the moment. But I wonder how many of you know that there were detailed and meaningful movements and conversations taking taking place about representation for First Nations people to the Parliament of Australia as long long ago as the 1920s. Our next guest has written an article in The Conversation about this entitled Long Before the Voice Vote, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association called for Parliamentary Representation. The author of this article is Professor John Manyard, who is a Wurrimiri, uh, Wurrimiri, sorry, let me get that right, Wurrimi Aboriginal man from Port Stephens region of New South Wales. He's currently a director at the Wallatuka <laughs> Institute. Sorry, it's been a long day, John. Um, of Aboriginal <laughs> Studies at the University of Newcastle and Chair of uh, Indigenous History there as well. And I'm very pleased to say that John is on the line with us now. John, welcome to the mission. Yeah, 
thanks very much, Daniel. Pleased to be here, buddy. Yeah, thank, thank you for coming on board. Um, it's an area of our uh, history that I'm really fascinated in, in myself and um, I've been acutely aware of the Australian Aborigines League for, for a long time and I was aware of the um, Aboriginal um, Progressive Association as well. Um, one thing I wasn't as aware of was how far the voice for representation, uh, the call for representation went back and it went back to, uh, way back to 1924 um, so the call for a voice department is not a new one, is it, John? No, well, a hundred years we've been saying this stuff for, Daniel, so there's nothing new. I mean, you know, that's what the one thing that drove me to write this article is because, you know, it's as if there's just something brand new that's been put on the, on the table. And as I said, our mob was standing up and speaking up for their rights and justice a hundred years ago, probably going back a lot further from the time those white sails first appeared over the horizon. But... In an organised political sense, our people were speaking out and demanding their rights, and one of those things was um, for representation in Parliament, and certainly as they went on to demand an Aboriginal board to sit under the Commonwealth Government. And that was uh, that, that the calling for that um, Aboriginal law to, um, to sit under the Commonwealth Government eventually led to the 1967 referendum, didn't it? Well, yeah, well I guess you can tie it in with that, but... The AAPA were operational between 1924 and 1929, and that were led by my grandfather, Fred Maynard. And realistically, they were hunted and hounded out of existence by the police acting for the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board because they'd embarrassed the, the, the board to such an extent through the media um, that they were, you know, they were basically taken out of the picture. But when you look at it, I mean, it continued on into the 30s with the Aborigines League and, of course, the Aborigines Progress Association and on through into the 50s and, and on to the 60s. I mean, um, and yeah, as you say, the uh, referendum and on into the 10th Embassy. I mean, so there was quite a number of the descendants that were there at the 10th Embassy who were actually members of my grandfather's organisation in the 1920s. So those long connections go back. Yeah, I said at the top of the show, um, there was a place down in Melbourne here called Speaker's Corner where uh, members yeah. of the Aborigines League would go and speak and talk about truth and justice and, and representation yeah. and, and, you know, Commonwealth law. It's, yeah. it's really important to remember, and this is why your piece is so good and so timely, John, it's, it's important to remember that we are on... The, we are on a continuum here. This is not out of the blue, and it's really important to know for, for, for people to know, both black and white, to know where the origins of these came from. And one of the drivers of that, of course, was your grandfather, Fred, Main, Fred Maynard. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Fred? Yeah, yeah, sure, buddy. And my, my grandfather was a wharf labourer, a Warramai man, who finished up in Sydney um, in the early decades of the 20th century. He finished up working on the docks with his brother Arthur for over 35 years. And, of course, they came into contact with the trade union movement and came into contact with a lot of visiting um, black merchant sailors coming from overseas and manifestos and newspapers and uh, political... Um, you know, manifestos with them, and through those conversations, my grandfather realised that the racism and prejudice and oppression we were facing here wasn't just a localised thing, it was an international thing, and we needed to, to face it and confront it in, in that space. And that was one reason why my grandfather and another prominent early Aboriginal activist, Tom Lacey, became members of 
Marcus Garvey, the Universal Negro Improvement <coughs> Association, which was a huge um, black movement in the United States, so regarded today as the biggest black movement ever assembled in the United States. And a, a, a chapter of Garvey's movement was operational in Sydney between 1920 and 1924. So that's um, that long connection. I mean, I, I guess that ties in with the 60s with black black power yeah. as well. Yep. It's the same thing. It's a continuation of those connections that we had and we looked to, you know, and um, that were really uh, critical in influencing and inspiring us. So in 1924, the, the, um, the AAPA came into existence, an Aboriginal organisation led by my grandfather, and there was others, like I said, Tom Lacey, Sid Ridgway, Dick Johnson, um, and a whole host of other important Aboriginal activists right to the state of New South Wales. And, and information about this organisation spread pretty quickly across state borders as well. So, you know, that's the, 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 the role that they put up and what they represented was the importance of history, our culture, our connection to country, and it was, you know, about social, political, economic and cultural um, gain and fighting for that. And it's you know it's it's a a movement. The Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association um, was a movement that expanded quickly too, to thirteen branches, four sub branches, and a membership in excess of six hundred people. But almost overnight, it kind of disappeared in nineteen twenty nine. And you alluded to it before, but why why did it just well not it didn't vanish, but why was it disbanded and, and heard no more? Yeah, well, certainly, as I said, the protection boards, the state government had been embarrassed, and as we know, the well, in New South Wales, the police commissioner was the head of the protection board. A lot of attention was given to the Aboriginal activists, and my grandfather, in, a, in an interview in 1927, he said that he'd been warned on many occasions that the door of Long Bay jail were opening for him and he would cheerfully go to jail for the remainder of his life. He declared if by so doing he could make the people of Australia realise the truly frightful administration of the Aborigines Act. He knew cases where children had been torn from their mothers and sent into absolute slavery. Now this, the, the, certainly the government and the police and the missionaries were involved with that, really looked upon as a threat. And um, the, the organisation was handed out of existence and driven underground, I would, you know, I would say in that respect. They were still meeting in my grandfather's uh, kitchen during the early to mid-30s. And uh, one old fellow I interviewed over, you know, nearly 30 years ago said that he heard my grandfather speak in the grounds of the University of Sydney in the mid-30s. So he was still there standing up, you know, so... It did continue on, and in essence, as he said himself, he, he would not stop. But the threats were pretty extreme. My father, who passed back in 2018, he said he and another young Koori kid were picked up when he was about five or six in the, in the mid-30s by the police and taken to uh, a Canterbury police station where he said it was the most frightening day of my life. And these are five- or six-year-old kids who were absolutely terrorised in that police station. My father said he never realised till many years later what that was all about. It was about getting a message to my father that we can pick up your kids any time we like and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. So he put up and shut up. But as I said, he never did. He had an accident, or so-called accident on the wharf, um, which um, uh, he had one leg broken in six places, um, sugar diabetes set in, gangrene, he had legs removed. 
and he was completely incapacitated until he died in 1946. So his uh, later years were um, pretty severe. But um, as far as the family is concerned, we still believe that it was no accident to what happened to my grandfather on the wharf. But, uh, of course, there's no proof for that. Well, that's why it's so important that we remember people like uh, like your grandfather, Fred, John, and, and the efforts that they went to. And, again, how we're all part of that continuum. It's just as an aside, it's it's interesting to, to note that um, the, the, the social justice movement through people like your grandfather and through people like William Cooper and uh, Jack Patton, mm-hmm. um, all unionists... And there was actually yeah. a clear and a close connection between um, the union and those movements in, in the very early days. And that's just um, a little aside. But, look, I've got to keep going, John, but it'd be great to have you back on the show some other time because there's so much of this history and the ins and outs and the intricacies of it and, and the broader politics and the broader history of the time after the First World War when there was so much colour and movement as to which direction the country was going to take. Um, yes, for sure. It'd be great to talk to you about it some other time. I, I, only to you, please, Daniel. I think it's important that we, we, we do talk about history for our own love's sake because so many people are taking notice of social media today. The reality is you need to get your facts straight if you're going to get anywhere as far as winning any debates are concerned. So it's very, very important. And on that front as well, um, very important for people to get along and support uh, Trove and make sure it uh, receives the funding that it gets because that's where a lot of this history is buried. Absolutely, buddy, absolutely. And and, any little historical societies and museums, as well as the major archives and the libraries, we've got to get more of our own library in there as well. You and I have a lot to talk about, and we'll talk about it some other time. But, John, thank you so much for coming on the show this evening. Pleasure, Daniel. Pleasure, buddy. Have you ever been awakened? Uncle Charlie is playing. That means we've come to the end of another episode of The Mission. Thank you to my two guests this evening, only Muriel Bamblett and John Maynard, laying down some truth for us all to pick up. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>